0: Hey, it's Bill Simmons. Today's episode of Channel 33 is brought to you by SeatGeek, the presenting sponsor for my podcast, as well as the only fan-friendly app for buying and
1: selling tickets for sports and music. With just two taps on your phone, you can instantly buy SeatGeek tickets to an event, and you can enter that event just using your phone. No paper
2: tickets. Drop your old ticket app. Use one that's built for 2016. Download the free SeatGeek app or go to SeatGeek.com. Hello and welcome to Achievement Oriented, the Channel 33 gaming podcast. My name is Ben Lindbergh and I'm a staff writer for TheRinger.com, joined as always by my fellow Ringer writer, Jason Concepcion. Hello, Jason.
0: Woo! (laughs) Is everyone okay? We all okay out there? Just ready to play video games for hours and hours a day, I think. (laughs)
2: That's, that's what we all need
0: I think that's <laughs> what we need right
2: now Yeah, and we've made it to episode 3 Now that we're a trilogy, we, I guess we can we can just act like we've been there before We don't have to keep acting as if we're not going to be back We're going to be back, we've made it, we're established So we're happy to be here, and we have a couple guests to talk to today Later in the episode, we are going to talk to Jason Schreier Who's the news editor at Kotaku And we're going to ask him about the NES Classic, mm-hmm. which just came out Some retro gaming talk. But before we get to Jason and old school gaming, we are going to talk about the present, talk about the future, talk about esports. So I'm teeing you up to introduce our first guest.
0: Today we have with us Matthew Mr. X Morello. He is a esports caster, former uh, esports athlete. You might know him from Call of Duty World Championships. You might know him from uh, the recent Overwatch World Cup. You might know him as a native of Plainview, Long Island. That's <laughs> right, very close to where I grew up in Levittown. Oh uh, hell yeah! So, Matt, thanks for being with us here today.
3: Oh, no, thanks for you guys for bringing me on. It's always weird when someone says Mister X. It's like I'm so used to hearing like my actual name, and then I'm know, like, right? I'm like, who's that guy? But no, it's awesome.
2: Do people get self-conscious about gamer tags? Like, are there contexts in which you want them to be used and others in which you don't actually want people to say that?
3: Some people are, like, super particular. Like, it's got to be said exactly how it is. I'm like, you can call me Matt. You can call me Morello. You can call me Axe. You can call me Mr. Axe. Like, I, I I don't mind. it. It's not something I'm super attached to.
0: Um, As someone who's, like, I, my Twitter handle is my Xbox Live gamer tag. It was super weird when people started calling me that in real life was that weird for you
3: oh oh yeah (laughs) like the first like events that i went to in like 2006 2007 people started calling me mr x and i was like look i was like we met each other in person like we don't have to use that anymore like 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 your name's andrew your name's chris like i'm like i'm not calling you like compact killer your name's like Bernardo. like 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 we're, like, we're getting lunch like we don't have to go by that so I, I always found it like for me once the initial meetup went out of the way i felt like you can kind of go with the first name basis. Yeah, that's how I
0: feel. It's just so strange when, it, <laughs> when that happens. Um, you've Your career is really interesting because it's, it's very traditional sports athlete arc. You know, you went from competing in tournaments to broadcasting them. Can you describe your background a little bit?
3: Yeah. So in uh, 2006, 2007, I was like a professional player on the MLG Pro Circuit. And then uh, after that, I took like a, a few years off from esports. I was just working with my parents and whatnot. And then I ended up coming back. And when I came back, I got into coaching teams and then managing teams. And then from there, it kind of turned into like another type of job. Like I still love the competition. I want to be a part of it. So managing teams is like great. And then uh, with the broadcasting stuff, it just kind of came out of the blue, to be honest. Uh, They asked me to go on one of the broadcasts. It ended up going well. And then I just have kind of spun it into a whole nother career. So I've been pretty fortunate in esports to kind of see a little bit of everything. And
2: what made you want to make that first career move? Were you burned out? Did you just see a longer future in other areas because the aging curve can be so unforgiving for competitors? Or did you just need a break?
3: I needed a break. And I think everybody who's a competitor, they kind of when you see yourself like not being as good as what you was, like that kind of sucks. Like you're yeah. just like, like yeah. like I was winning tournaments. And then like that first, like seventh place, you just kind of sit around the hotel after you're like, well, that was awful. <laughs> like that, I, I played bad and it was like, I don't think I want to do that. I think I want to try and, uh, you know, uh, create something different for myself in the space. So I kind of, I wanted to walk away out on top. I didn't want to, you know, just be somebody straggling, holding on for a while.
2: Yeah, I guess you can't. Call yourself Mr. X if you struggle for too long. No, no.
3: I mean I I watched I watched Ewing play for the, the, the Sonics and the Magics. Oh. So I, I know what it I know what it's like to watch somebody hang on for a little bit too long. Um
0: when did it become kind of reality that you would actually be able to like be in tournaments and make money from it? I mean like you you know, I think everybody plays who plays video games has that one spark of, Oh wow, I'm pretty good at this one. But when was it like, Oh, I'm really, I'm good enough to like, you know,
3: win yeah. a car? Yeah. well, actually that's hilarious. Cause I did win a car. That's how, <laughs> that's how, that's how we figured this all out. So, uh, they ran a tournament. Uh, I believe it was like GameStop and some other, uh, Dodge was the sponsor of it for uh, a game, Rainbow Six Vegas. And, At the time, I'd only played online and like a small group of people and I was like, I thought I was pretty good, but you never like really kind of know. And then I just remember, like, getting to the finals of this tournament and, like, winning this car, like, with our team and, like, running in and telling my mom and her being like, that's BS. They don't give away cars on the Internet. And then, like, we what sold a kind of car. Uh, it was a Dodge Nitro. I don't even know if they make Dodge Nitros <laughs> right now. But uh, I just remember, like, bringing home the check from, like, selling the car her and she was like oh my god like this is legitimate and then you know mlg started doing tournaments all over the states and the first one i was a little bit skeptical i was like i don't know if i want to go do this i was like it's just an odd environment like for me like i was like ah oh, like i'm gonna meet all these people i've known for years like just kind of it was odd but once you get there it was uh, completely normal and then uh, once i started doing it i started placing well so i kind of I knew I was pretty good, you just never really know how good you are until you actually try. And
2: obviously over even just the last several years, it's become more lucrative and better organized and standardized. Oh, and and so I wonder whether, you know, like in other sports, there's always this moment where suddenly there's just an inflation in salaries and everyone's earnings skyrocket. And then the players who played before that point, some of them get kind of bitter and they oh, look yeah. and they say, you know, I made a fraction of this to do the same <laughs> job. It will come along a little later. Is that something that a lot of esports players from the early <laughs> days are feeling right now
3: oh yeah oh for sure i mean i look at some of these guys it's like first class travel everybody's got their own hotel rooms like i think my first event like i shared a room with like five other people i drove from new york to north carolina and i was like now i'm seeing these guys like they fly in all over the world they're making like hundreds of thousands i'm like this is great i feel like it's it'll be how the nba is in like a few years when like the salary cap just keeps going like out of control
0: Well, yeah, uh, now NBA teams are getting involved. Uh, The Sixers are the first North American sports team to actually buy an eSports team. Um, You're seeing all these figures from traditional sports, traditional media, seeing the energy that's in the eSports scene and wanting to be part of it. How has that affected eSports in general the last year or so since this has been happening?
3: I I think it's been great for eSports. I think it just gives even more just overall recognition of what's going on, like in our scene. Like, I mean, we have guys that are making like a hundred thousand plus a year, got a million followers on social media, like huge YouTube fan bases and whatnot. And like, sometimes like you speak to people and like, they have no idea, like this like little world even exists. So I think like bringing in those sports franchises and just, you know, some other business people to run some of these teams and market them. I think like it really helps legitimize what we're doing. And why is it so difficult for players
2: to stay at a high level for a long time? Is it because of the conditions? Because teams are only just now starting to figure out that you have to give guys breaks and, you know, treat it like a, <laughs> like an actual sport where maybe you can't play all day every day. Is that part of it? Is it actual reaction time declining and competition just being
3: very cutthroat and you needing to be 19 to just be the, the quickest clicker? So I think there are like a few factors that go into right i mean reaction time kind of goes down with age i think those things are like correlated and then like you know you, you you're in school then you're trying to work another job maybe you got girlfriend family there's like so many different things that can kind of go into like your desire to play but then the actual games themselves like what's interesting about esports compared to something like you know traditional like an nba or f- football or whatnot like You look at something like Overwatch, it's like you're really good at a few heroes. It's like an update comes out and that changes like the pool of heroes that people play. And then it's like, well, maybe you're not that good at that one. So you're not as good as like the game as you once were like a month ago. Or like Call of Duty, like a new game comes out every year with like different guns and different mechanics and stuff. So it's like it's a really hard grind to stay at the top. And only a few people like in esports in general, I mean, you know, really kind of stay at that top for more than like a year and a half two years it's pretty difficult
0: I'm glad you mentioned Overwatch because I've been trying to get Ben to play the game I think he'd really gotta play it Ben I think he'd really I think he'd really like it there's just so many heroes that I feel like would fit would fit fit Ben's (laughs) playing style you would be an
3: excellent Lucio that's
0: what I tell him like my playing
3: style is
2: just bullet sponge (laughs) is what (laughs) I'm (laughs) I'm gathering (laughs) okay so so hard to kill you keep telling me me to be a tank which I'm taking as an insult I think you'd be a
0: tank oh the tanks are great listen anyway um, so I was watching the World Cup uh yeah. and why are the South Koreans so good?
3: Dude, they're first are of sick. all, like
0: the thing I love about Overwatch, you know, and I like I, I'll watch Call of Duty sometimes, I'll watch CSGO occasionally, but there's like a level of strategy that's that you can reach because of the mesh of heroes that I think is really special. Like South Korea did this thing where they knew that I think it was. It might have been. It might have been Sweden. They knew that the opposing team had a uh, had an ultimate, which is like when you charge up your hero, they have a special ability, and so they position themselves within the map to use the geometry of the map to kind of like negate the power of that ultimate. They're just so yeah. smart. Talk about that, like that game, in the context of <sighs> esports right now.
3: It's just. It's, like, at the pinnacle, I think, of, like, it hits, like, kind of every box, right? I mean, it looks great as a game. Like, it plays great. It's a lot of fun. I mean, the multiple different heroes, like, fit different playstyles, you know, for different people. Like, some people aren't the best, like, aimers, for instance. It's, like, you can play a hero like a Reinhardt or somebody like a Lucio and make, like, a massive difference in the game, but I think it's just, like, It's like you're watching chess at, like, super high speed. Like, I mean, these guys are going, like, at a million miles an hour. But to your point, I mean, you kind of look at, like, what South Korea did. It's like they just work so well as a team. Like, I I think Overwatch is, like, the first real, like, full-team esport I think we have. Like, Call of Duty, like is a team game, like, in concept, but, like, you can have, like, one or two guys, okay. like, carry your team in kills, right? It's like six Kobe's, basically. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is, like, you have to have, like, six top-notch <laughs> players, and, like, you have to be on the same page at, like, a million miles an hour. I think it's just really impressive, especially the things that South Korea is doing. Yeah, they
0: have, um, they have one of their players, Miro, uh, mains tanks, and he's playing Winston, who is a, like, this gorilla space scientist, gorilla character who puts out very little damage but is very mobile and kind of overlooked. Like if you play online, a lot of people don't pick him. I've been messaged not to pick him. Uh, (laughs) And then you watch the way Miro plays Winston. And it's just, it's like really inspiring. Like there's a creativity there that I just didn't realize was possible. They're a freaking amazing team.
3: Oh, so sick. They're so good. I mean, the things that he does, like the thing that I found crazy is like, I'll play some Winston online. I'm pretty good and I'll die, like, whatnot. And, like, Miro never dies. He never like, dies. Like, <laughs> he yeah, never you watch dies. him. And, like, I was, I mean, even when I'm casting it, I'm like, all right, like, he's been in there for a while, and, like, I take a look down at his HP, and it's still at, like, 400. Like, I'm like, how? Like, how <laughs> yes. is he, like, like, does anyone see him? Like, is he invisible? Like, he just, uh, th- they just play it, like, different. And I think what's great about Overwatch is the different abilities. I mean, a lot of people, like Winston, he has this, like, jump where you can just basically just do this massive jump it does a little bit of damage but get into different spots and it's like a lot of people use that to like get into battles it's like miro just kind of like walks in there as winston like does a little bit of damage then as soon as he feels like he's getting in the trouble he uses that jump to get away so it's like just a completely different concept
0: yeah it's something i noticed that that he does is the cooldown when you use your jump you've got six seconds before you can use it again and he'll jump and kind of jump into, uh, like, the geometry of, the like, the roofs yeah. and kind of slide down. So it burns off, like, one or two seconds of his cooldown. So, so he still gets the damage when he lands. But then he's ready to jump out, like, much quicker. And it's just, like, these really little smart things that you notice. And that's another thing. I was watching it. First of all, the set was amazing. Like, it's crazy how polished esports broadcasting has become. What do you see as... The change like it, but it's also obvious that the evolution of, of the broadcast language is, is yeah. changing. Like this it's you know, you're not sure how to do picture in picture yet. Like these are things that are still being worked out. Where do you see that, that broadcast language going over the next few years?
3: Oh, I, I think the sky's to limit. I mean, we have like some really smart broadcast people in esports and I think just like learning from traditional sports, like we did some stuff at the Overwatch World Cup where we did like instant replays like as the action's happening. Like we were doing some picture in picture stuff, like we can go to different interviews, different sets. And I think the thing that changes the game for us is like when we do get like all the broadcast tools like down and polished, like we we're almost there now, I think, like overall in esports. But like we have so more so much more accessibility to the players and to different, you know, developers and whatnot than like traditional sports. It's like it was sometimes like a player will give an interview after a basketball game. You won't hear from everybody. It's like we have the ability to go to anybody we want. Like the players are more than willing to work with us. The players want to be the biggest thing ever. So I think that's really where we can separate ourselves. It's like that backstage access and that insider stuff that you usually don't get. And I think once we get that production to match it, it'll be even better.
2: Yeah, when Jason and I were at
3: MSG a
2: few weeks ago watching the the League of Legends semifinals, we were sort of struck by how much of the language the casters were using could have come from any other sport. Like, obviously, there's a lot of game-specific jargon that wouldn't make sense to anyone who hadn't played it or watched it before, but... A lot of the focus on sort of the pressure of the moment and being able to perform in front of a big crowd, or the narratives of the teams coming in, or the rivalries between regions—all that sort of stuff—just
3: could have come, you know, almost yeah. word from word from any traditional batter ball sport. Well, I think it. All, I think to the point, like you, I almost feel like you kind of need to do that, especially mm-hmm. when you're trying to get to like different audiences and so many new people coming into esports. It's like if we trying to like sometimes i ran into that in call of duty it's like i i knew the game so well that i would talk so technical about it that like new people would be like wow i have no <laughs> idea what that guy's talking about like, like uh, that guy <laughs> that guy's talking about some crazy stuff it's like i kind of learned like you can kind of get the same points across but just using a little bit of simpler terms and really just kind of like dumb it down and i think that's what's really helped esports viewership overall in the last year kind of grow is the fact that Now I think we're starting to involve everybody instead of just the hardcore. Is there a genre that
2: is more fun for casters or more challenging for casters? Like if you could compare broadcasting a first-person shooter versus a MOBA or something, I mean, just in terms of what you can see and how much you have to keep in mind, is one significantly different from the others?
3: (sighs) No, I've only casted first-person shooters. MOBAs, I feel like, would be extremely difficult, something like A League of Legends or Dota, just because there's so many things you have to manage. Like you have to manage kills. You have to manage what level the people are is what Items they're buying, like how much gold they have. And then like special things popping up on the map. Like I can just imagine like what kind of a headache that is, but with call of duty, like it's pretty, it's pretty straightforward. Cause it's like always a first person perspective. Like you kind of have like game modes that are pretty easy to understand, like abilities that are pretty easy to understand. So it's not, like, super difficult, like, in terms of, like, understanding visually, like, where things are. Overwatch is a little bit jarring. The first time I casted Overwatch, I was like, oh, man. I was like, I play, like, 300 hours of it online. I was like, I'm going to go cast this. It's going to be, like, a breeze. And then, like, the game's just so fast when you're watching it. Like, you just want to talk about everything. Like, that's the thing yeah. that really kind of hit me. It's like, oh, my God, there's so many cool things happening. It's like, now you have 30 seconds to speak. It's like, what are you going to talk about? I'm like... I want to talk about all of it. Like, all of it was awesome. So I think Overwatch was a big adjustment for me. But uh, now, after doing it, like, one or two times, I kind of find it pretty easy. It's super easy to follow. But when Ben
0: and I were at MSG, the teams were in the hero selection portion right before the match. And one of the players selected a hero, some redhead, magic y looking character, and the arena erupted for some reason. <laughs> and we, and we were just like, ah. like I, guess, I guess that's okay. Yeah, that, I don't know. Um,
3: I think that's when they picked up Misfortune to be support.
0: <laughs> it, 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 listen, it, it very well may It be. very well might be. It,
3: yeah.
0: um, so I was watching the World Cup, and a lot of I don't think there were any. games uh, is pretty much all like 2-0s just like and they seem like in retrospect you you would look at those scorelines and think they were like steamrollers but a lot of those matches were really back and forth there was like exciting things that happened in every match there were so many matches that turned on one play of a player either mismanaging an ultimate or boosting the wrong player how do you bring out those moments because like you said the game is so fast is that something you guys think about, like how to better bring out those moments um, after the fact to kind of like build up the nar- the in-game narrative of what happened?
3: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think that's kind of why we added those in-game instant replays, because there's some stuff like even we miss, right? Like, yeah. uh, you know, when a Genji is stuck in a graviton surge and like he reflects like a pulse bomb, it's like, like the game's moving so fast, sometimes you can't actually see that. So I think the coolest part of those instant replays is, you know, a play would happen. We talk about how important it is and what happened. And then uh, I know Blizzard just did a fantastic job. Like they had like eight or nine different observers there and you were able to pretty much get like a first person POV of anybody. So like in the back, they're recording all the first person POVs and then we're just showing you like an overall game feed and we were able to do replays from the first person perspective and that's what really helped, like, kind of set the narrative. But that's something all the casters talk about. Like, they're trying to figure out, like, what are the key ultimates going into a fight? What are the key players going into a match? And just trying to really bump up those stories.
0: Talk about that system a little bit. So you've got people watching backstage and they will pick out a play and say, oh, this, this McCree missed his flash bomb," and that kind of changed this fight. Is that, is that how it works? You've got, like, different people just at screens watching from different players' perspectives and they'll call something out?
3: yeah so I mean uh for BlizzCon, to give you like a just a little like bit of like a an idea, like they had like six replay people they had like you know the eight in game observers, I think it might have been even more, but they they kind of can assess like what's that key moment, like what was the cool thing like and then of course, like we're in a third person p o v and we see somebody get like you know a, a three kills with like a dead eye or a death blossom. It's like you wanna see that from the first person p o v and, uh, you know, the observers, directors, I mean, everybody, like even the replay guys, like they have basic knowledge of esports. They've played the game. So I think that helps as well because they're able to just kind of key stuff out and then throw it into the broadcast. And we know as casters what's coming. And
2: how big a role do stats play or how deep do they go? How deep do you think they'll go in the future? How much prep and scouting and sorting through leaderboards will you have to do at some point just to be prepared to cast something?
3: Oh, a lot, a lot. I mean, in Overwatch, for instance, I mean, uh, we have to know, like, which are the main heroes for each player. And I mean, six players on a team, like 16 teams in a tournament, that's a lot of information already. And then, you know, in-game, you're trying to look at, you know, the damage dealers, like how much damage are they actually outputting to, like, how many kills they're picking up? And, you know, how many final blows does McCree have? Like, how many times has McCree taken out, you know, Genji or Tracer? There's a whole lot of numbers you're just trying to... Just kind of rattle in your brain. I think the most important thing, though, is to, like not kind of just throw the numbers out at the fans. It's like just take the numbers that are like relevant to the match and then kind of present them. I think if you just, if you threw all the stats at them, they would just be overwhelmed. I feel like.
2: So, what do you think of the the news about the new league that was announced last week? Particularly the the city based teams was something that Jason and I were pretty excited about because. That just seems like something that could really capture the attention of someone who is not necessarily in on esports to this point and just hasn't been able to get behind all of these teams with, you know, hard to remember names and people constantly (laughs) switching from one team to the next. And if suddenly you actually have a team that is based in your city and maybe has some consistency to it. That seems like it could be a really big step, not just for Overwatch, but if it spreads to all of esports.
3: Oh yeah, I, I think I tweeted out the other day that like the Overwatch League has the potential to just change the entire landscape of esports. I think just like with the way they're setting it up, with the different cities, I, I think when I first heard it announced and I saw like the, you know the different cities and players playing there and whatnot, and it's like like that's cool, like that's something that like. I can explain to my friends like pretty easy, like, hey, we have a New York Overwatch team like and they're going up against Los Angeles. And my friends go, well, I hate the Lakers and the Clippers and I love (laughs) New York, so I'll watch the New York Overwatch team and hopefully they bash LA in. Like, like, I feel like that's something that a lot of casual fans can get behind. And it's something I think that can definitely like propel esports forward. I think I think Overwatch League is going to be incredible.
0: For someone who's, who has no idea about Overwatch, kind of plays video games for fun, has that kind of experience with it, sell Overwatch as an esport to them. Like, who are the, who are the players that really excite you? What is it about the gameplay that is so entertaining to watch?
3: Yeah, Overwatch is just an incredible game in an esport because of the whole team aspect. It's something that I think a lot of people can understand, like that of, you know, played sports or watch sports. I mean, the NFL, like you have the importance of an offensive line. It's like your offensive linemen in Overwatch are basically your tanks, like the guys that are just leading the way for your superstars in the back. I know maybe your McCree is like your wide receiver or something where, you know, <laughs> those are the guys who need to make plays and. You have the guys kind of leading the way for the guys to make plays. Then you have your playmakers, your guys like, you know, somebody like Taimu on Envy, who like just has like this crazy amount of skill, like who can just, you know, just pick players off at range or somebody like Tavik who like, where skill kind of like drastically changes, right? I mean, Tavik is yeah. like considered one of the best players in the game because he can play so many different heroes at a high level. It's like not many players can do that. So I think just watching these guys and how versatile they are and how smart they are as well, I, I think it's just an incredible just viewing experience, especially once you watch it like once. When you watch it once, I feel like you kind of get addicted to it and I, and then you start following players and you can go watch them stream individually and whatnot. And I think just the whole team aspect, how fun Overwatch is, is just a game. I mean, you have a monkey with a laser cannon. <laughs> <laughs> like just taking people out. Like you have like this large, like fat bellied man with a hook and a mask and like a nail gun. Like, I like it's just, it's so awesome. Like the concept of all the heroes is just so cool. I think it's just a game that can just bring a lot of people together.
0: Yeah, when I was watching the final, I was struck by how the narrative of that of South Korea versus Russia was uh could be extrapolated into so many sports, especially basketball, because it was really yeah. it really seemed like South Korea was a cohesive team while Russia just was very good, but they had they have one standout guy, Shadowburn, who plays the ninja Genji, and Genji's role really is just to Kind of get in behind the other team and cause chaos, get a lot of kills, uh, wear down the enemy, have them never be able to look in a particular direction because they're, you know, you're always concerned that he's behind you. And they just absolutely <laughs> shut him down. Yeah. I mean, it was really like, it was like something you'd see in basketball where they're like, okay, stop <laughs> this guy and let, let's see if the supporting cast can carry the game. And they couldn't.
3: Yeah. It was really amazing. Kind of reminds me of, uh, the NBA finals from two thousand seven, Cavs Spurs, where like oh, yeah. LeBron was good enough to get him to the finals, but yep. like they didn't have a supporting cast, and the Spurs were just such like a good team overall that like you kinda looked at Russia and like Shadowburn is there, LeBron. Like they rode him all the way to the finals, yep. but like it just showed like that a good overall team effort can really just kind of trump any individual play. And uh, I, I do think, though, I mean, Shadowburn's just run at that event was just, like, insane. Like, insane. that was, like, just, like, he was, like, 1v6-ing teams for, like, yeah. the entire week. I was, like, how long can this go? Like, it just was, uh like, it was a really good, just, climax to, like, overall on BlizzCon. It's, like, because you kind of saw the stories develop. Like, Russia was, like, a surprise team out of groups. And then nobody really thought that Russia could, like, make it there. And then once you started watching Shadowburn play, you're, like all right, they won that one. But like, can he do it against this team? And it's like, oh, well, he did it against them. It's like, can he do it against the next? And they found themselves in the finals. But I think uh, Korea just proved that if you have just an overall just fantastic team with good teamwork, you can take out one player. So
2: when you started, I imagine most esports teams were very bare bones and sort of, you know, see their pants operations. And now things are getting much more professionalized and, you know, there will be like benefits and minimum salaries and everything in the new Overwatch League, which shouldn't be remarkable, but sort of is in comparison to where (laughs) esports used to be. So what do you think the typical esports team will look like in, say, 10 years, you know, in terms of... Support staff and infrastructure, and just
3: everything that goes into the team apart from the players themselves. I think you'll see huge staffs, kind of like how professional sports do. I think you'll see teams bring in like legitimate, like coaches and like you know ex players and whatnot. I think you'll see teams also bring in like sports psychologists and you know maybe some chefs to like do some dietary needs, like maybe like a trainer to come in and just keep these guys in like top physical shape. And I think. It'll be cool. Like, I mean, you kind of look at something that traditional sports can't do, that esports can do. It's like, well, what if New York was just one brand? Like, what if the Knicks, like, encompassed, like, football, hockey, and basketball? It's like, that's something that esports could do. It's like, you could have, like, one brand that has, like, all these top teams in it and that you can... You can follow the brand. You can follow the players. Like you can make like a conscious decision for yourself. But I feel like though that staffing is going to be huge. Just general managers, managers. Like it's gonna it's gonna become pretty big staffing, and I think it's gonna actually come pretty quick. Jumping off that, um, what do, what are the
0: changes you see coming for esports broadcasting in the next couple of years? Where do you go? Where does how does the language change? What are the things it needs to improve?
3: Oh, I think uh, for the esports broadcast, I think we just have to kind of keep in mind that although we do have this hardcore audience, like, there's a lot of new people that are coming in that are just hearing about esports for the first time that play these games, that you can't kind of overwhelm them, like, there needs to be a part of the broadcast that, like, you can dumb it down, or you can make them understand, like, I think the easiest way, at least for me to getting other people to understand is just relate everything back to sports. It's like, everybody loves traditional sports, like just kind of relate those scenarios back. And I think that's the easiest way new people can kind of get involved. And I think also just kind of keep pushing the boundaries. I mean, with instant replays in game, we had never done that. Uh, you no, know, MLG Vegas coming up for Call of Duty. We have a lot of stuff planned in Overwatch as well. Uh, just from like a staging perspective. I mean, some of the stuff we've done in the past with like you no know, big LED walls that kinda change by what's going on in game. Like just kinda keep pushing those boundaries and Some augmented reality stuff. I know uh, Valve has done stuff in the past where they have like VR broadcasting. So I think really just kind of keep pushing the limits and seeing where we can take it and maybe even push it past what traditional sports is doing.
0: That sounds great. I mean, Zarya, so we should
3: play some Overwatch this weekend. We should play. I'll play Winston (laughs) and you can play Zarya. We'll get Ben a copy. I'll tell you, Ben.
0: May, I I see you as like a Lucio or maybe a May,
3: a really trolly May. First, you can start out, you can start out on Torb. I feel like everybody starts out on (laughs) Torb. I don't know whether these are compliments yeah, I or insults, so. but I will, I'll yeah, take them. Yeah, Torbjorn is a, I believe he's a dwarf that can put down turrets, and uh, he can just use his hammer, build the turrets up, and then you would just watch the turret kill people, and you just, was like, kind of <laughs> talk to us. Yeah. I can do that. <laughs> I feel like that would be the best spot for you to begin.
0: All right, well, Matt, right. thanks for taking the time to be with us here today.
3: Oh, no problem. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Okay, so stay tuned. We will be right
2: back with Jason Schreier of Kotaku. All right, so we have covered the present and the future, and so now for our second segment, we're going to retreat to the comforting past. So we are going to talk about the NES Classic, also known as the Mini NES, also officially known as the Nintendo Entertainment System colon NES Classic Edition. Although I hope no one except Nintendo is actually calling it that. But that is the news. The system came out Friday. And so we are talking to the news editor of Kotaku, Jason Schreier. Hey, Jason.
1: Hey, Ben. Thanks for having me. I'm glad that you call it the NES and not the NES because... <laughs> no. No, Ness Ness is a character. Ness is
2: a character. We don't need that unnecessary. Who would do that? Exactly, exactly. Terrible, terrible. So before we get started, this weekend marks the five-month anniversary of the time that I tweeted a Game of Thrones spoiler and you got spoiled. So now that you're on our podcast, I need to ask for absolution for my (laughs) terrible tweeting.
1: I'll think about it. I will think about it. I might uh, we'll see how next season of Game of Thrones goes. I but I'm I'm actually glad to be on a podcast with the master himself.
2: I know. Me too. I get this it's privilege exciting. every week. So this seems like a good time to release a throwback console. It's a time when uh, people don't necessarily want to live in the present given the events of the past (laughs) week. So retreating to... It's also a time when people want to restore the past. Right. So going back to our collective childhoods seems well-timed. Nice job, Nintendo. And you've been playing this thing, and and I don't want to sound too stalkerish here, but I went to your Facebook profile, and on mm-hmm. your Facebook profile you have a picture of, I assume, yourself as a young child, seated in front of a TV on the ground, holding what looks like an NES controller. And I can only imagine that given the limitations of the NES Classic, you have been in a very similar pose for the past couple of days.
1: <laughs> it's funny. Everyone was joking because I was I was talking a little shit about the way that the controller cable is only three feet long. Yeah. So you can't actually sit normally with it. Um, but it's funny. The way I set it up, actually, was I put the NES, uh, the mini NES next to me and just sat on my couch and ran the HDMI cable across my living room into the splitter um, next to my TV and did it that way, which was mm-hmm. probably bad news because my fiance already tripped on it a couple of times. <laughs> so it's not really a, a a feasible way of using the system
2: you gotta be careful with uh with long cords and nes's that's how i lost my original nes one of my most traumatic childhood memories my cousin ran across the room and tripped over the cable and it fell as i was playing the teenage mutant ninja turtles arcade game and that was it that was the end for my nes and i was i was console-less for quite a while it was a dark time
1: Rest in peace. That's a game that should have been on there, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles game. That was a fun game. A bummer that it's not on this one. Yeah.
2: So I got an NES for, I think it was maybe my sixth or seventh birthday, which I realize now must have been a budget gift because I think the SNES was already out by then. So my parents must have been cutting costs. And I got Mario and Duck Hunt, and I also got The Legend of Zelda Gold Cartridge, which in retrospect was probably not the best first game ever to play. (laughs) It's a a classic, (laughs) but when you're like six and you're just trying to figure out what to do in the original Legend of Zelda. That is a daunting task for a experienced gamer and adult without a strategy guide. So I remember being lost, but lost in a fun way.
1: <laughs> yeah, that was a fun way. Didn't it come with a map and an instruction manual in yeah. that it
2: gave you a bunch of hints? Yeah, I think it, it did, but I don't think it was enough for me. I definitely no. never completed that game. <laughs> but, so, you've been playing this thing for a couple days and wanted to have you on to get your impressions of how it's held up and uh, whether the nostalgia is justified or whether it's leading us to places that we don't actually want to go in practice. So, <laughs> this uh, system comes with 30 games. You played them all. You gave them a, a quick review at Kotaku. So, what is your verdict on how well the package as a whole holds up?
1: Controversial review. I got a lot of <laughs> uh, uh, interesting feedback to my ranking. <laughs> a lot of people were mad because I trashed Excite Bike, which yeah. is a bad game. Well, that's last. A,
0: that's <laughs> I, I I take issue with it. But let's continue. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, yeah, well, I mean, I assume it was you guys who were, like, sending me emails and commenting on Kotaku. Uh? I assume it was just the two. We were just yeah, doing it
2: on Reddit only.
1: <laughs> just on Reddit, on Kotaku in action, yeah. Reddit. <laughs> um, it's funny. Yeah, it's there are a few games that hold up really well, a few that don't. I think the NES actually, incident, like incidentally, is the one console that is not held up really well and it's closer to the arcade uh, days when all these games would be frustratingly hard and they were built where it was like they wanted to take all your money so you had limited lives and they were really punishing. And I actually think the Super Nintendo, which Nintendo is for sure going to do an (laughs) SNES Classic next year, um, I think that's going to be a way better device, especially for people who haven't played those games. But the NES Classic still has some... Classic games that hold up really well, like Super Mario Brothers, um, all three of them really, but three especially, and Kirby's Adventure, and Metroid, and Castlevania. I really enjoyed going back to all of those. Some of them, some of the games on there are not great today, um, but some of them are. Dr. Mario is another one that I think I could definitely keep playing, and Star Tropics is one that really surprised me because I had never played that growing up. Um, It's kind of a Zelda clone set where you're this like baseball pitcher who can, who gets a yo yo that he can hurl at enemies and so you go around all these different dungeons throwing your yo-yo at monsters and solving puzzles and stuff like that and that actually plays surprisingly well today um so yeah there are a few gems on there if you can get past the whole three foot controller cable thing uh it's really not a bad purchase at all
0: i wanted to to stand for excite bike just for (sighs) a moment okay because if memory serves that game had a level editor which at the time was the most mind-blowing thing i'd ever seen as a child <laughs> that you could uh-huh. actually design levels in a game and i think that i think that alone should push it up i don't know it's like it makes it better than ghosts and goblins
1: at least <laughs>
0: Well, so here's ice the climber changes, even so,
1: so, yeah, no, I I probably should have put ice climber on the bottom and Ghosts and Goblins. Yeah, maybe Excite Bike could have been twenty eight or so. Um, still terrible, but uh, <laughs> maybe not the worst. Um, the thing is that the way I rank those games actually is based on how they hold up right. today and not how they held up thirty years ago. Oh, yeah. So thirty years ago, thirty years ago, when you're playing Excite Bike with a friend and you're both just kind of uh, mashing the controller and 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 trying to beat each other, that was a lot more fun than it is today. Day, I think when there's so many better options, uh, unless you and your friend are really nostalgic for bike <laughs> and used to play it 30 years ago, uh, sitting on the floor staring at the TV. But yeah, but the level editor thing also is one of those things that I, I tried to rank them and kind of judge them based on, not based on how revolutionary they were at the time, um, which is and some of those games you know, like Final Fantasy. I mean, the Final Fantasy series is one of my favorites of all time, but final the first Final Fantasy does not hold up well at all. If I were ranking all these games based on like the things they did historically it might look a lot different but yeah a lot of these games have some bad practices and i don't know the excitement man the sound effects are so annoying (laughs) and just everything about that game bothers me (laughs) so
2: what was the common element when you went back in a game didn't hold up what was the most common reason why
1: I think a lot of it is that those games were punishing but not in a way that feels fair. So like if you play something like Bloodborne or Dark Souls or one of those really difficult games today oftentimes you'll feel like okay this game is really hard but if I play enough and if I develop my skills I can get past it. This is a problem that's a problem on me and it's not a problem on the game as opposed to a lot of these games where you're dying because the controls don't work properly or because the pixels aren't recognizing each other and so the collision detection is completely off. Um, when it's when it's problems like that and it's clearly because this is a 30-year-old game and not because it's in any sort of referendum on you, then that is kind of annoying and feels antiquated and kind of obsolete. I think that, that there are definitely those out there who are masochists, and I used to be like this back in the NES days, who feel like, oh, this is it's just a fun challenge and I'll just keep doing it. And if the game is broken, then that's just another challenge to get past. But I think today when there's so many other Great games to play, especially this year, which has been full of incredible games. Um, it's just not worth the time to revisit a lot of these, in my opinion. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it's. I, I remember the original Metroid. It probably took me six to eight months to finish that game. Like <laughs> with the combined brain power of like myself and two friends and the Nintendo Power magazine, and we called like the hotline, and it was like. <laughs> It was, beating a game was like a job back at, yeah. back in those days, and I just can't imagine anyone taking, like, aside from games like Skyrim, where you don't, ha- where you're not on a path, you're not stuck if you can't get past a certain thing. I can't imagine somebody taking on that challenge again.
1: Yeah, I imagine a lot of, and and as we know, I don't know if you guys saw all the headlines today, but it's impossible to get this thing. that's surprised It's sold me. out everywhere. Yeah. That's
2: a, that's a Nintendo tradition, right? That's the full retro NES experience. Yeah. You shouldn't be able yeah. to buy it
1: that's that's true actually fun fact uh, a couple of years ago or last year Nintendo released uh, a special edition 3DS that was themed on Majora's Mask and it was like this really slick cool 3DS that had the Majora's Mask on it and it was gold and it was like a limited edition and we did a post that was like wow this thing is selling out here's where to find it and it wound up turning into like our biggest traffic post of the year because <laughs> it was so crazy because everyone was just like searching for where to find this thing uh, and that's just Nintendo's MO they just artificially like deflate the supply of these things and let demand rise and you know they're going to make a killing on Black Friday when they're like look it's back (laughs) everyone trample each other for this thing Yeah. but anyway as I was saying before the point I was trying to make is even though this thing is really hard to find I imagine that a lot of people will buy it maybe shuffle around in a few games for novelty purposes and then barely use it because they'll find that a lot of these games haven't aged well Um, I think some of the games people can definitely play like Super Mario Brothers 3 I would recommend playing through and it's in entirety because it's still fantastic but most of these games it'll be like oh i remember double dragon uh 30 seconds in okay i remember why i stopped playing double (laughs) dragon i remember why i play games on ps4 instead of nes
2: yeah and it seemed like the imprecision of the controls was a, a common theme in your reviews also
1: yeah, and that's a thing that, that you really notice after playing modern games because modern games, I mean, just designers have, have learned how to do all these techniques and polish these games and that they feel like, like a modern designer could tell you, oh, that feels like it's a frame off, and that will make all the difference. Like if there's an extra frame in the animation with Star Tropics, for example, when you're walking around, it takes an extra frame to kind of turn in the direction that you want to walk in, and it's the type of thing that you don't really notice until you notice it, and then you're like, Shit! Like this yeah. feels unpolished. This feels clunky, uh, and that's something that I think designers just learn to get over, like to get past and to fix years and years ago. How
0: how is it uh, using that the controller after you used the modern controllers? Like, is, is that clunkiness? Is it a function of the controller? Or is it a function of design? Or is it some kind of combination of both?
1: Actually, I don't mind the controller. I actually think it feels pretty good, all things considered. I mean, it's not the best, but but considering how old it is, I, I don't think it's that bad. Um, I think it's the controls themselves. So, like, mm. when you press the A button, if it doesn't recognize your command or it takes an extra second to recognize your command or, like, it doesn't recognize that you you were slightly one frame or it's, like, not forgiving enough to give you that extra frame because you're one frame down and the enemy is, is just, like, an extra frame in the wrong direction and it doesn't and pick it up. That's the type of stuff that feels imprecise and frustrating as uh, as a player. It, yeah, it's not, a, it's not on the controls. It's on the, the games themselves.
2: And I'm kind of with you, I think, when it comes to retro games. There are so many great games being released weekly at this time of the year. I don't have time to keep up with them as it is without diving back into the, the dustbin of history. And between that and also, I think, just being disappointed in some ways when you do go back far enough and you see what these games are actually like now instead of remembering them in this sort of fog of childhood when they were state of the art and the best thing you'd ever played. It it can be kind of a letdown. And I, I don't know, do you guys have any memories of games that you thought were just fantastic at the time? When you were a kid, but now you are aware that you just had bad taste. <laughs> they were just <laughs> never actually that good and you were just hooked on them. I was trying to think of a few last night, just games that over the years I've been sort of obsessed with before, you know, review aggregators were out there and we all made decisions based on what its Metacritic score was. And you could often just sort of walk into a game store and buy a bad game by accident and <laughs> just, you know, like if you were a kid and, You didn't have much of a game budget and you had lots of time. You would just play it anyway. And sometimes you would kind of like it. So I was thinking like Battle Tanks Global Assault for N64 was a big one for me. Air Force Delta for Dreamcast was a big one for me. Reckless, the Yakuza missions for Xbox was a big one for me. And I, I, I went back and looked at the old review scores because they're archived on GameRankings.com. And all three of those games are like in the 60s or low 70s. like they're, they're just average, mediocre games, even at the time, I guess. But for whatever reason, I remember thinking they were just the best.
1: Yeah, I, I've had a few. I, I remember playing a lot of uh, an Ultima game. I think it was Ultima 3 Exodus or Ultima 4 Exodus on the NES. And I remember there were a lot of ways in which you could gate yourself so you couldn't actually make any progress. And I would always, as a kid, I would be like, oh, damn, I got to start again and just keep trying over and over again <laughs> to do all these obscure, like obtuse things that I, in retrospect, should have been <laughs> designed a lot better. But at the time I was like, oh, this is my fault. I need to, I need to be better at this. When you, when you're a kid, you just don't know better.
0: Mm-hmm. I think I made most of my choices, or my directed my parents to to buy me certain games, just based purely on the box art, yeah, and that right. went on for a long time. Um, <laughs> I actually haven't gone back to to play many games. The one one I did go back to is GoldenEye, which I was addicted to for a long, long time.
1: Oh man, I mm-hmm. didn't
0: I didn't even own the the console. I, like I had a, an acquaintance, a friend of a friend that did, and I would just make up reasons that we needed to go over there so we could play GoldenEye, uh, and then I went back and played it recently. And it's just not, you know, this the first person shooter mechanics have advanced so far and there's so many things that you're just used to being a core part of the experience that when you play GoldenEye, it's like, it feels like you're swimming underwater and mm. trying to do a... Uh, one of those Ninja Warrior races. It's just like feels like you're just stuck in muck. But, you know, you can appreciate the maps and things like that. I was never good at GoldenEye is the other thing. I was
1: That's that's the other thing. Uh, Jason, do you remember the box art for Mega Man? That was, that was yes. the, the dumbest and the best simultaneously. Uh,
0: Metroid was one and Castlevania. Those two box arts just like absolutely fascinated me.
1: Oh, 100% man. and
0: Metal Gear, although Metal Gear was a game that I got as a kid and I was just like, I don't understand what this is. You know, like,
1: <laughs> well, but the once thing about I got Metal Gear box, even as like... an adult, you're like, I don't know how I feel <laughs> yeah, about Metal Gear. I, I was like, <laughs>
0: what is this? <laughs> I don't
1: think even Hideo Kojima understands. <laughs>
2: <way>. <laughs> Are there any genres you think hold up particularly well, either because maybe they've fallen out of fashion or the mechanics haven't advanced all that much or maybe the technology just wasn't all that integral to enjoying them? I mean, I know you're a big JRPG guy. Does that hold up well
1: typically when you go back? I think the Super Nintendo JRPGs hold up really well, and that's why I mentioned the the, the SNES classic before because I think there could be a ton of re- Really, really good JRPGs that you could get on that, like Super Mario RPG and uh, Earthbound, which feels kind of clunky but still holds up really well. Um, as far as the NES goes, actually, something that I noticed is so there's a game called Gradius, and I don't know if you guys have played that, but it was a, it was a, I think it was Konami. It's kind of a shoot 'em up where you're controlling the spaceship and you move from left to right and you just shoot yeah, enemy spaceships. Yeah. yeah, it's really cool and it, it holds up pretty well. And it made me realize when was the last time we saw a shoot 'em up? Like I can't think of. of Any (laughs) spaceship, like left to right side scrolling shoot 'em ups that I've seen in a very long time. Maybe on Steam, there are some random little ones that that are. GameCube had some. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was like like 10, 15 years ago. I feel like that Mm -hmm. genre has really died. Also, I think as far as. Aging, I think the platformers are the ones that have held up the best. Um, Super Mario 3, like I mentioned before, Kirby's Adventure, which actually feels like a Super Nintendo game because it was made in 1993 on the on the latter end, probably one of the last games to ever come to NES. Um, and that's on the NES Classic, and you can play that, and it, it holds up really well. So, yeah, those kind of side-scroller 2D platformers, not the brawlers. The brawlers are the ones that, that feel too clunky, but the platformers tend to tend to hold up.
0: Man, I love the brawlers. That's mm-hmm. I, Double Dragon is another one I, I have to take issue with.
1: But it's okay. We'll let you You have go. to uh, play it now. That's the thing. You have true. to see how it feels now.
0: It's true. It's true. What do you make of the kind of the nouveau platformers like Hyper Light Drifter, this kind of remake of these old style NES games um, today? What do you think is fueling that besides just nostalgia and kind of like a... Interest in the genre
1: Well I think there was A hole in the market For a long time I think yeah. people really Wanted them um, But the companies Like Capcom The company behind Mega Man Wasn't making new Mega Man games For a long time And Konami wasn't Making new Castlevania games Actually one of the Best games I've played In the past few years Is an old school Platformer called Shovel Knight Have you guys played that?
2: No nope. I didn't but Yeah I'm, but man, I'm aware of it Okay yeah. so
1: it's really cool It's it's like a combination Of all the NES games That game basically If you play that It's like you're playing An NES game you member so it's got all the good parts of NES games without yeah. any of the clunkiness because it feels really precise and smooth to play it's really well designed it really feels like a modern day Mega Man or Castlevania or any of those old school games um, and it's just a platformer where you're just making all these precise jumps and, and doing really cool things and those games in the indie world I think are really successful and really fun to play uh, there's this game that just came out called Owlboy that was made by uh, a couple guys over 10 years <laughs> which mm-hmm. is another crazy the platforming game um i think there's yeah there's a big hole for that that i think uh indie companies or indie developers realized that hole existed and that people wanted them but big companies weren't giving them to anyone anymore nintendo occasionally will release like a 2d mario game uh on handheld and i guess they have that mobile game super mario run that could fit the bill but for the most part the companies that used to make those games aren't doing it anymore so there's definitely room for for a lot of them
2: you're in new york right i am But you say Mario. Jason and I had this debate on last week's (laughs) podcast because I say Mario for some reason, even though I recognize that that's probably wrong. And I say Wario, so it's inconsistent. Uh But I thought it was a New York thing that I grew up hearing all the time. But you're a New Yorker and you say Mario. I actually,
1: I used to say Mario, but it got kind Ah. of pummeled out of me by by people when I started uh, like working in games and talking to more people. They're like, it's Mario, (laughs) not Mario. I was like, wait, what? (laughs)
2: <laughs> okay. So I have just stayed true to my roots. Yeah, and it's you definitely have not.
1: it's definitely a New York thing, yeah. I sold out our people.
2: <laughs> Good to know. All right. I am soothed, I am transported back to early childhood. <laughs> back to, back to when yes. there's America nothing was nothing worrisome it. about yes.
0: the world.
1: <laughs> Right I, I wish
0: I, I wish there was a Konami code for these times
2: oh, man.
1: we are currently in. <laughs> if only, yeah. if only. It's good to distract ourselves with video games. That's, that's the best. <laughs> Although there is a video game that just came out this week called Tyranny, and it's about yes. a world where <laughs> <Yeah>. evil wins. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> it's about like a, literally a fascist taking over. So fun times, yeah. video games, yeah. escapism.
2: all right you can all read jason at kotaku you can find him on twitter at jason schreier if you're looking for other video game podcasts you can hear him and kirk hamilton talk about video games including what he just talked about with us probably but also many other things on the split screen podcast jason thanks for coming on and don't up up down, down, left, right, left, right, be a stranger.
1: <laughs> that was how long How long were you planning that? Yes.
2: <laughs> I don't have to tell you because you just brought up the Konami code, so it'll seem organic, as if that gave me very, the idea.
1: Very organic. All right, thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate it.
2: I was thinking about it for about two hours. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. All right, good thanks talking Thanks a lot, man. All right, thanks, guys. That was, that was fun. fun. All right. So that will do it for today. Thanks to Matt and Jason. And thanks to you, Jason, as well. Good talking to you as always. Same here.
0: See you next week.
2: Yeah, we have a lot of games coming out, and I'm not sure what order we're going to get to them in, but we have Owlboy, as Jason just mentioned. I am interested in that. We've got Watch Dogs 2. We've got Dishonored 2. We've got more stuff coming down the pipe after that. So next week we will probably do some sort of game talk, and if you want to advocate for a certain title, feel free to reach out to us. But we will be back next week.